Hear the word of the Lord. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication, that's Hanukkah, uh, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him, or circled around him, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words and your good teaching in this passage that you are the good shepherd, that you lay down your life for your sheep, and that no one will snatch us out of your hand. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would be instructing us, teaching us, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see that we could repent and turn to you and find life and freedom. Do this by your Spirit, Lord, who uh, is so powerful. We pray these things in your great name. Amen. Well, in this section, uh, Jesus finishes his teaching on himself as the Good Shepherd, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago, uh, and his love for his sheep. And it, it, he touches on something here that I think every honest Christian uh, asks, a question that every one of us has probably struggled with. Uh, we ask things like, Will God ever get sick of me uh, and leave me? Will he forget me and let me be hurt? Uh, everyone has had experiences in the world, uh, the world that God has made, whether at school, among friends, or with siblings, spouses, and especially with parents and caretakers, uh, where we have been neglected, abandoned, uh, forgotten, and even betrayed. And it's in those moments and in moments that remind us of those that everything gets shaken. Uh, unglued, and understandably, we begin to ask, is God, who made this world, is he the same way? 
And we don't ask that question because we don't believe in God. In fact, uh, we ask the question because coming to God in faith means that we take him seriously enough. We take him seriously enough to ask him for assurance that he is not that way as we honestly grapple with the tragedy that sin has twisted the good world he's made. So I know many of you, like me, have wondered in your heart whether you truly belong to the Lord. Uh, you know, uh, you might ask yourself questions. Uh, does he really know me? Am I, am I just deceiving myself? Uh, have I, how can I know that I really hear his voice? I know those questions very well, uh, and they are haunting. Uh, they haunted me for a number of years. Uh, but they haunt us because we actually can't answer them on our own. We are actually not meant to be able to answer those questions by ourselves. We're actually called to look outside of ourselves to the Lord for assurance. And that's really the main point of what I want to draw out of this passage today. There's, there's so much here that we're just not going to get to. Um, but I want to look at the fact that assurance, assurance is not something that we create for ourselves. Assurance that God loves us doesn't flow from us. It flows actually from the Lord. Uh, so I just want to consider in this passage uh, in this light with three points. Uh, the first, uh, we're just going to look at bootstrapping assurance. That is to say, when we try to bootstrap or create our own assurance, what that looks like. Secondly, that God himself is our assurance. He is our anchor. And then thirdly, uh, freedom as a result of that assurance. What life is like when we have God as our assurance. So first, bootstrapping assurance. Uh, when our assurance of God's love is rooted in ourselves, uh, it, it, it produces things. There's symptoms that come out of it, and they are that we become demanding, uh, we become defensive, and we become deaf. Uh, these are kind of the symptoms of a life where we have to become the assurance of God's love to us. And I'll just, there's a few things I see in this patches that point this out, uh, mostly in the responses of the crowd. There are some people in this crowd who by the end of the passage come to believe. But for the most part, this crowd is fairly hostile to Jesus. And I just want to think about what's happening there and uh, discern maybe some of the underlying currents in what they say. First, they're very demanding. Uh, let me read verse 24 to you again. <clears throat> so the Jews gathered, actually it says, circled around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly or tell us boldly. Tell it to us already. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent, in my mind, of a pack of bullies uh, at school, surrounding a kid, uh, circling him, and demanding his lunch money. Uh, they circle around Jesus, and they corner him so they can interrogate him. But what they ask is, is not a question of curiosity. They're not asking out of a place of wanting to know and learn. In, in true, earnest curiosity, they are asking out of a place of demand. The fact is that Jesus actually was never so foolish to just come out and say, by the way, I am God, <laughs> uh, because he knew people wouldn't understand right away. He also didn't come out and say, I am the Messiah. He said it to his disciples, but he never said it in public in very clear language. Uh, the fact is, is that many people on that day actually did say that about themselves. There were actually lots of fake pretend messiahs who actually uh, said, I am the Messiah, and we should gather arms and fight the Romans. And they led the Jews into battle, and they all got crushed. So Jesus wants to have nothing to do with that and says, only to his disciples, I am the Messiah. So the Jews are saying, well, you've never told us clearly. But the fact is, is that if you've been paying attention to what Jesus says, I am the bread of life, come down from heaven. 
Or, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. If you've been paying attention to Jesus' words, his signs, his miracles, it would have been perfectly plain that he is, in fact, God himself and the Messiah. So why are they confused? Well, that's the other thing, is that they've become defensive. Uh, they're too busy defending themselves. Look, look at verse 20. Those who are listening to him, they say, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Jesus has just gotten done rebuking the leaders. And they say, you know, he's mentally ill and he has a demon rattling his brains. That is to say, we don't have to listen to his words. We can ignore him. We can write him off. Uh, rather than a posture of curiosity or learning, they have a posture of control. Anything that's troubling, they want to scrutinize or accuse or oppose and eventually kill. Verse 31, they pick up stones, not pebbles, mind you, stones. But why? What are they afraid of? Well, admirably, uh, these people are afraid of blasphemy. That's actually a good thing to be worried about. Verse 33, they say, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they claim to be protecting God's honor. But this is the wild irony of this whole passage. I don't know if you noticed that when we were reading it. Verse 33 is so ironic. You, being man, make yourself God. They speak to God who has made himself man and say, you know, the whole problem with everything you're doing is that you're pretending to be God. They're seeking to protect God's honor by dishonoring God in the flesh. And they end up uh, wanting, basically, to protect God from himself. They're so eager to make sure they did what was right that they actually miss God himself who has made himself man when he's right in front of their noses. Now, of course, uh, we can have all sorts of sympathy for them. It's not the easiest thing to figure out. But how was it possible that God in the flesh, doing signs and miracles, speaking plainly to them, that they missed it? How did that happen? Well, just a little bit of background here is helpful to see what's going on in their hearts. Uh, in the next chapter, in John 11, uh, John lets us in on this kind of backroom conversation between the Pharisees and the priests. They notice Jesus after he raises Lazarus from the dead, and they say, uh, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They were aware of all the things he did. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That is to say they're afraid of two things. They're afraid of the Romans. They're worried, with good reason, that Jesus is leading a rebellion and the Romans, who are sick of these little rebellions and false messiahs, they're worried the Romans will come and crush them and crush Israel and destroy the nation and kick them out, scatter them from the land. In fact, this happens about 40 years later in AD 70 and again in AD 135. They are afraid of losing their home and their stability, and with good reason. But they're also afraid of making God angry. You know, the fact that they lived as an oppressed people with the Romans as their rulers, 
was a daily reminder to them of how their forefathers and their forefathers' forefathers had worshipped other gods. They lived in a daily environment and reminder that they had been unfaithful as a people. And so they're worried, they're worried, they're afraid that if they didn't stop Jesus, everything would be ruined again. So they have, they came to believe that they had a stable home, what stability they did have, and a nation because they had managed to get everyone else to be faithful, to keep God's law. And so it turns out that they became deaf and unable to hear Jesus' voice. Jesus says, verse 26, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And this really is, I think, the key to understanding some of what's going on in those who opposed him. They rooted their assurance of God's love in their own ability to keep God on their side. Uh, it was up to them to have certainty and control in all things, in all matters of obeying the law, in, all, uh, in everyone's life. Uh, their law-keeping and control of others was the place that they battled for God's assurance of his love. But in doing so, they actually missed him. So, so the point of all this is that anxiety about getting God to continue to love them kept them from being able to listen. Anxiety about pleasing God, keeping him on their side, makes them a terrible listener. So let me say it again for us. So long as you feel the weight on your shoulders to make an angry God happy with you, so long as you are anxious about keeping an unfaithful God on your side, you won't be able to truly hear him. If it's up to you to make God happy with you, you won't be able to listen to him. You know, um, I, I've wasted years of my marriage uh, not listening to my wife. Uh, especially early on. When you, when you get married uh, early on, you're really eager to be a good spouse, and you try really hard. And my wife would come to me and say uh, things like, honey, you know, I just, I felt really overlooked and hurt because various things that I'd done. So my immediate response for many years was, um, I hear what you're saying, uh, but I I want to let you know that while that might be true, the real truth is that I really love you, and let me show you in all these other ways how I love you, right? Uh, I want to show you that while there might be some truth in your, what you're saying, I'm actually really good at loving you. So the failure is not mine. The failure is yours for not feeling loved. <laughs> I never said that explicitly, but that was definitely what was going on. For some reason, my wife didn't feel loved by me saying that. I don't know why. What would make me respond this way uh, was that I was already afraid of hurting her and letting her down. I was already afraid that I was on probation, right? That I was already in uh, time out, as it were. Uh, I was already trying as hard as I could. And if that still wasn't working, then what else could I do but assume that it was her fault? And we don't often think of defensiveness as uh, something we do to try and prove our love to people, but it very much so is. It comes from a fear that when a critique is made of us, when something is exposed in us, a complaint or some hurt mentioned, that it's actually a lead-up to that person saying, I don't like you anymore. I'm done with you. We assume that if we don't please that person and try and keep them around, they'll leave us. And, and in many cases, we're right. That is the way the world operates, according to the flesh. 
But it's a miserable slavery, if you've ever been in a relationship like that. If you've ever approached people like that, it is miserable. And it robs you of all the joys of receiving forgiveness, of enjoying the other person, and of freedom. So it's in the places where we are most desperate to make God happy with us. It's in the places where we most doubt that He is kind. That we are least able to hear Him. But what if, what if God's actually not ready to pounce? What if He's actually not waiting, counting our sins, and waiting for that last one, so then He'll really drop the other shoe? What if he's actually the kind of God who understands our fears and is tender and compassionate with us? What if he's a shepherd and not an accountant? I know uh, many of you have asked these questions. Does he really know me? Am I just deceiving myself? Am I just playing along? I want you to know that our assurance in these things comes not from looking at ourselves, but looking to Jesus. And that's what I want to spend the second half of our sermon on. This is our second point. God himself is our anchor, our assurance. And I just want to show you uh, that Jesus takes the weight on his shoulders. Uh, we don't need to make him love us. He chooses to love us. And he goes out of his way to assure us of his love. So just a few things here that ground our assurance in him. First, he begins our relationship with he began our relationship. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. That is to say that he called to them first. Before they called to him, he called to them. He called to you. He knows them. He is attentive to them first. They don't have to ask him to pay attention. He is already attuned to you. Verses 3 through 4, you don't have it in your bulletin, but it's the beginning of this chapter. Jesus says, The sheep hear the good shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. That is to say, he goes to the sheep. He comes to you already knowing your name. Right? He already knows everything you've experienced, and he comes to you before you come to him. And so that's to say, all of our life, all of the actions of the sheep are simply responding back to what the shepherd has already started. Oh, thank you, Deborah. So thoughtful. I was getting dry. The other thing is that he's a giver. He's not a taker. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Uh, what demands do you hear from Jesus in this passage? Do you hear any? How does he say you can measure up to being a sheep? He doesn't. Because it's not the way he thinks. Because actually his posture is not one of demand, but one of giving. He gives freely. He doesn't manipulate to get something back. He gives out of his own abundance because he has no need. But the other thing is that I want you to see that he is fiercely protective of us. Look at verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one 
is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Whose hand? Whose job is it to protect the sheep? It's Jesus. It's the shepherd who is called to protect the sheep. Jesus says that it's his job to hold on to you first before you're ever called to hold on to him. Now, the Bible is uh, plainly honest about the suffering that we will all face. Uh, there's no sugarcoating in this passage. He says very plainly that there is a wolf prowling around looking for someone to pick off so that they can he can devour them. Uh, the Bible is very honest about all of the threats we face, but what he does say, however, is that neither our enemy nor bad spiritual leaders, nor the trials and suffering on this path will snatch us from his hand. No one, nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning. He does not say, if you're truly one of my sheep, you'll never get out of line. You'll never wander off. You'll never betray me. You will never terribly and painfully and scandalously sin. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, if you were one of my sheep, you wouldn't suffer. You won't face real danger or threats to your life. No, here's what he says. If you are one of my sheep, I will never lose you. It's my job to protect, to lead, to heal, to restore you. And I will not fail. I just want you to see that when Jesus seeks to give assurance to us, he doesn't do it by pointing out all the things we need to do. Though there are things that help us remember. And he doesn't do it by even pointing out the ways in which we've grown. Though that's encouraging too. What he does is he points to himself and his Father. Because he gives himself as the great proof that God does not take his love away from his people. Jesus is the anchor of our soul in God's love. And it turns out that we aren't even the foundation for his love for us. Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We are one of the sheep because he chose to save us. It's like what Paul says in Romans 9. It doesn't depend on human will or energy, but on God who has mercy. His love for us is unshakable because it is founded first on his love for the Father. That is to say, the security of our relationship is directly a result of his everlasting love for the Father and the Father's love for him. So in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And it's that overabounding love that sent Jesus to the cross and rose him from the dead so that we could have his eternal life too. So, that means that when Satan whispers in your ear, and tells you that you don't belong to him, it means you don't have to prove him wrong. You don't even have to argue with him. You don't have to prove that you are one of the children of God or prove yourself worthy of the Lord's love or prove yourself worthy of your relationships. You can simply look to Jesus' cross and say, my foundation, my security is God himself who died, who rose, and who gives himself to me. That, in fact, is what baptism is all about, if you didn't know. Baptism is not about our promises to the Lord, but God coming to us and making promises to us, marking us with his love. 
And so it's as we begin to actually rest in Jesus' love to us more and more that we're actually freed to do two things. We're freed to hear and we're freed to follow. And that's the, just the last couple things we're going to say, our third point. We have freedom in Christ's assurance to listen and to follow. And those are the main two things Jesus says are true about his sheep. My sheep listen, they hear my voice, and they follow. So I'll, I'll just mention verse 4, he says his sheep know his voice. Verse 5 and 8, he says his sheep flee from strangers because they don't know the stranger's voice. 14, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. To listen, to listen, to hear something of God's voice means our heart has to have an openness. Room for him to speak. To be someone who hears God's voice means that even when his words expose and challenge us, we let them. We let him challenge us or change us because we're not in charge. We don't need to be. We are ready to follow. I know for many of you there's a worry that you aren't truly one of his sheep. What if I've just deceived myself? But here's the wonderful truth. By asking that question, by wondering and worrying, am I, do I really know the Lord? Uh, being worried that we've ignored his voice in the first place, you are displaying just the kind of readiness to hear that Jesus says is true about all his sheep. Uh, if you care about hearing his voice in the first place, then the Lord has already softened your heart and has made you ready. It's just that you're scared. And that's the second thing that Jesus says is true of his sheep. They follow him. Following is almost always scary. Let's be honest. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I can't help but think of uh, Psalm 23 here. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Though I walk through death, through loss of family, loss of job, loss of health, loss of the life I once had. Though I walk through the valley of shadow death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Following the shepherd does not mean there's no danger. There's a wolf. He leads us through dark places, dangerous places. But he leads us. And he's with us. And he won't let anyone snatch us out of his hand. And so... We are able to follow him even through the darkness, into the unknown, even though it's scary. It's scary not in the sense of being with someone who's creepy and you don't know what they're going to do to you. It's scary in the sense of standing on the dock and you want to jump into the water, but you know the water's a lot colder than the air because it's Washington, right? Following Jesus is scary because he takes us into places where our normal comfort our normal self-assurance runs out. And we are forced to look to him for assurance more and more. But it's also good because as we listen and follow, we learn to be more and more sure that he is good, even when life stinks. So when Christ is our assurance, we're free to listen to him and others and to follow him through the darkness into true and lasting goodness that he loves to give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,
Lord, give us eyes to see you in your kindness to us. That you have chosen us. That you lead us by name. That you yourself are the foundation of our relationship. And so, Lord, we cast ourselves onto you. And ask that even as we hear your voice and follow you, that you would draw us out into yourself that you would help us to see more and more of your kindness and that we would be more and more assured that you are gracious. Lord, teach us these things and give us greater freedom, not only in our relationship with you, but with others as well. Uh, Seal these things into our own hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.